Father, I want to thank you for the hardness of this passage, the frankness, the bluntness. Wake us up with it. Use it to wean us off a of love for the world and its attractions. Use it to make us dependent on Christ and his benefits. Reveal to us through this text our senseless pursuits and put us on a gospel path where we run hard after eternal things, not superficial things. Where we pursue Christ, not fleeting substitutes. Let the weeds that grow in our soul be cut at their roots and gospel flowers be planted in their place. Do the gardening heart work we so desperately need. Take us to new depths in our repentance and new heights in our awe of forgiveness. Show us Christ, for if we do not encounter him in this text, we will not be sustained. We need the sustaining Christ. There are sinful thoughts, motives, and intentions in us that can only be cleansed by Christ's blessed work on the cross. We need you to go to work on us. Bring out the chisel, and if necessary, the chainsaw. Mold us into the image of your dear son. Give us deeper affection for you. Give us higher reverence for you. Give us longer endurance for you. We are pulling up a chair to the table. We're spreading the cloth napkin on our laps and reaching for the fork and knife. We came to feast. Spread a banquet that will make our mouths water and our hearts leap. We need theological protein to build our muscles to resist the allurements of the world. We need spiritual fruit to respond in grace when we meet opposition. Holy Spirit, if I labor in the flesh, this will be a disaster. Will you make this moment a demonstration of the Spirit and of power? Make the text personal, personal, personal. Make the gospel glorious, glorious, glorious. Make the blood precious, precious, precious. God, build faith and hold us fast. Thank you for all the faithful workers who are pouring out their lives to our children and pouring your word into their souls. Speak to their little hearts. Redeem, sanctify, get the glory, do your name from our children. Now as we turn to our learning, our edification, our sanctification, help us to behold wonderful things from your word. Transport us to heavenly places as we dig in unmined truths. We need the text to show us our depravity and the despised one. Our inadequacy and the Spirit's adequacy. Our sufficiency and the Spirit's sufficiency. Our shortage and His oversupply. Our dearthness and His enoughness. We have hearts of stone. Use this passage to break them. We have hearts that are locked. Let thy truth be the master key to open them. We have hearts that are broken. Let this text be the healing gospel balm to soothe them. We have sad hearts. Let this exposition make them glad. God, help me to preach like this is my last chance to do so. Help your church to listen like this is the last exposition they will ever hear. This is our corporate plea. Amen. Our study of 1 Kings has led us to the Solomon narrative. We've studied a spiritual giant for the past couple months. We've studied Solomon in the best of days. Now, we will study Solomon in the worst of days. We begin to see chinks in his armor, a big gaping hole in his heart. Chapter 11 is the turning point. There's an abrupt change of tone. Solomon is going down. Chapters 1 through 10, 
Solomon is a picture of Christ. Chapter 11, Solomon is certainly no Christ. He's the king of love, but his love turns rotten. We must understand the nature of his collapse. It was a glorious reign, but it is a ghastly end. Chapters 1 through 10, the fruits and favorables of a brilliant man. Chapter 11, the faults and frailties of a drifting man. Here's what I have for you. The peril of drift. How did I end up here? Verses 1 through 11. How does God view my drifting? Verses 9 through 13. What are the repercussions of my drifting? Verses 14 through 43. Finally, hope for the drifters. Applications. How did I end up here? Verses 1 through 8. How does God view my drifting? Verses 9 through 13. What are the repercussions of my drifting? Verses 14 through 43. Finally, hope for the drifters. And there we have some applications. It is better to swallow this chapter whole than fragment our, treat our treatment. So I'll drip a few truths along the way, but we'll take it as a whole. The peril of drift. How did I end up here? Verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. Solomon is not the first man whose downfall has been a woman. He should have learned from Samson. Solomon has a soft spot for foreign women. His bed. This was the dark side of Solomon. A fatal flaw in his character. Solomon wrote in Proverbs about the seduction of the ungodly woman. It's one thing to write about it. It's another thing to resist it. Some Bible scholars say the word love here, Solomon loved many foreign women, is the one place in the Bible where love could be changed to sex. I disagree. I think Solomon loved them. Genuinely, authentically loved them. We must not reserve the word love for only holy areas. We must leave room for unholy loves. There can be pure love and sinful love. A godly love and a devilish love. Just back in chapter 3, Solomon loved the Lord. Eight chapters later, Solomon loves foreign women. Loves can shift that quickly. Love bookends Solomon's reign. In the beginning of his rule, he loved God. Here at the end, he loves foreign women. Solomon didn't make that transition in a day. It wasn't one day Solomon decided to stop loving God and start loving foreign women. That day never happened. The only way you can explain this movement is a gradual drift. Love drifts. It's subtle, almost imperceptible, but it begins to move. It's the peril of drift. Solomon's marriage to Pharaoh's daughter was just the tip of the iceberg. He married other women from neighboring states. Moabite women, Ammonite women, Edomite women, Sidonian women, Hittite women. Now I realize you don't have a category for this. So allow me to modernize it. He married American women, Italian women, Russian women, Chinese women, Nigerian women, Canadian women, Cambodian women, Togolese women. Now you might wonder why the God who created all these women would not allow Solomon and the Israelite men to marry them. Is it just national pride? Let's stay Jewish, keep the ethnic lines pure? That's not it. 
Nor is this a Georgia boy falling for a girl who was a Tennessee Vols fan. It's much bigger than that. These women didn't cheer for different sports teams. God said it's spiritual. They will turn your heart away from me. God prohibited, strictly forbid his people from marrying other nationalities because each one worshipped a foreign deity. It was never simply about the foreign wives. It was always about the foreign deities that came with them. Solomon stubbornly ignored God's command and married them anyway. Violated God's prescribed law. Even though he was warned, they will seduce you to infatuations with their gods. This is not a modern day prohibition against intermarriage. This is not saying if you are an American, you can't marry a, someone from China. If you are dark-skinned, you can't marry light-skinned. Forbidding of mixed marriages was all about idolatry, not skin color or nationality. God says, stay away from them. Why? Because they're ugly? No, because she's not a believer. She will slowly erode your commitment to me. The word clung in verse 2, Solomon clung to his wives, is the same word used in Deuteronomy when the kings were commanded to cling to the Lord. These women took the place of God in his life. That can happen with your spouse. You put her in a spot that belongs to God. Ladies, you give allegiance to him that only belongs to God. Solomon could not plead ignorance or accident. He knew God's word. He intentionally and defiantly chose to disregard God's command. The people you love can make you stop loving God. The people you love can make you stop loving God. We are not ancient kings with a huge harem. But we still face the same danger. You can be negatively influenced by the company you keep. All of you single adults, if you are intentionally pursuing a romantic relationship with a non-Christian, you are already in the peril of drift. There are earthly loves that can negatively impact your love of God. Your decisions really do matter. Every non-married person, listen to me. Who you marry is so very important. Solomon never explicitly decided to stop loving God. Yet the more he loved these ladies, the more his love for God drifted. Marrying those who do not follow God is very serious. This passage does not say, never do business with a non-Christian. It does imply, and it is directly taught in the New Testament, not to marry a non-Christian. Sister, your love of him can crowd out your love for God. He will influence your devotion to God. Dating is for the purpose of marriage. Never date a non-Christian. There are nice Moabites, nice Ammonites, nice Edomites, very nice pagans. Niceness is not the test. Following Yahweh is the test. But pastor, I love him. What does God command about you marrying someone who doesn't follow him? But it's love. Your love can be devilish. Solomon's was. You better be careful about being too emotionally attached that you go through with it anyway. Pastor, he tells me he is a Christian. He accepted Jesus into his little heart in vacation Bible school at age six. He says he'll go to church. How gullible are you? 
He, he will tell you everything you want to hear. There are Moabites who, who will say, I'm a Christian. But you already know. Deep down, you know there is no real fruit of his conversion. I don't support dating evangelism. If, if you are reading the Bible with a non-Christian, it better be to evangelize them and not trying to convince yourself that he or she actually submits to the Lordship of Christ. Non-Christians? Non-Christians? If you are not a Christian, I advise you not to date them. How about this happy sermon on Christmas Eve? Bethlehem has implications, friends. If you are a Christian married to a non-Christian, we know from the New Testament, you are to stay with them and try to win them to Christ. But be very aware that a non-believing spouse can turn your heart away from God. Verse 3. Solomon had 700 wives, who were princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. 700 wives, 300 concubines. That's a harem of 1,000 women. Solomon, what were you thinking? Can you even remember their names? That's a lot of anniversaries to keep up with. Do you realize the repercussions of your actions? 1,000 wives means 1,000 mother-in-laws. I, uh, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't spend a lot of time with my, my father growing up. But on the few occasions, I, I do remember when he would step outside and it was colder than he anticipated, he would shiver and say, mm, son, it's colder than a mother-in-law's love out here. <laughs> Solomon has 1,000 mothers-in-law. So much for being the wisest man in the world. My mother-in-law actually listens to some of our sermons online. And maybe she will skip this one. Or hear it and be encouraged on Christmas Eve. <laughs> Verse 4. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. When Solomon was old, it took a long time to reap the harvest, but he reaped it. This has been gradual, slow, but progressive. The season of growth was long, but reckoning day came. In 1 Kings, wisdom is not the same as godliness. Solomon was wise, but that didn't translate into his holiness. He had more wisdom here than all of us. But the problem was here. The head stayed between the lines. The heart was drifting. In the Solomon narrative, we have God-given wisdom described in the same breath as his incipient foolishness. And we can reasonably imagine Solomon started marrying these women one by one, little by little, year after year. And at first... No major changes on the outside. The effects of your sinful choices are not always immediately apparent. Solomon's heart was not wholly true to his God. His downfall stemmed from a heart problem. There was a hairline fracture in the heart. Ever so small, ever so slight, Ever so easy to miss, his heart splintered. The heart of his failure is a heart failure. Do as Solomon says, not as Solomon does. And guard your heart. Do as Solomon says, and not as Solomon does. And guard your heart. Solomon failed to heed his own advice. In Proverbs 4.23, Solomon warned, guard your heart from out of it, 
everything flows. He failed to guard his heart. Hearts are given away partially. Ounce by ounce, piece by piece. Those women aren't going to satisfy you. Neither will those grades, that raise, that house, or those friends. Though Solomon never utterly rejected Yahweh, he gave some of his devotion to others. Solomon had bought the lie that it was possible to serve God half-heartedly. He thought he could keep his sin and keep his heart. You can never do that. If you think the loves of your heart ultimately will not have consequences, you are foolish. May God reveal the cracks in your heart that will lead to utter devastation. The heart is the control center. All sin is an inside job. Verse 5. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Some scholars have said Solomon went from merely tolerating the existence of these idols to bowing down before them. And this seems to be wild even in his day. Solomon worshipped the gods of the nations he conquered. Kings usually did the reverse. If their nation was conquered, they would worship the god of the conquering nation. Solomon worshipped the gods Yahweh defeated. Solomon's sin was not the subtraction of God so much as the addition of gods. Solomon bought into the synchronistic lie, God plus. We know divine mathematics, God plus anything equals heresy. Solomon becomes a polytheist, thinking Yahweh is the chief of the pantheon. However, Yahweh demanded exclusive worship. The other gods are fine with pluralism. The simple point is this. You cannot serve God and. The God of Christianity demands undistracted loyalty. He tolerates no rivals. Solomon went after Ashtoreth, this fertility goddess. Wild orgies took place as a form to worship her in her temple. He went after Milcom, which is Molech. What does going after these gods entail? Verse 7. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemish, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives, who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. Going after entails building. He built a high place for Molech. Do you know who Molech was? That was the statue of iron whose belly was an open furnace. The fire would be stoked in his belly and the entire statue would be glowing with heat. The arms were fashioned outward and into those red hot arms Infants would be thrown as sacrifices. The screams of helpless infants would pierce the air and satisfy the monstrous false deity. Solomon built this place for child sacrifices. This detestable God demanded human sacrifice. Extremely abominable practices. How vulgar. Years later, Manasseh will sacrifice his own children to Molech on the same high place Solomon built here. Could you imagine supporting something that sacrificed infants? We sacrifice infants every day in our country. It's called abortion. We sacrifice them to the ease and comforts of their mother. Don't you be squeamish when you hear of this and not squeamish at the Molech high places we have built called abortion clinics. Solomon built cozy chapels for his pagan wives. 
separate cult sites. Many wives led to many gods. His polygamy led to his polytheism. He built altars when he should have torn them down. Solomon's love for God led him to build the temple. Solomon's love for his wives led him to build these high places. You understand, he did it out of love. He wanted to be generous, open-minded, caring, accommodating to his wife. So he built this for her. He's flexible. He's not stiff. He's giving. Your loves always cause you to build, to spend money, to sacrifice, to flex. Your love makes you flex. Solomon had sowed the seeds of small compromises. Then they grew into widespread idolatry, and he lost his heart. Philip Ryken said, We fall into sin long before we fall into disgrace. How could Solomon excuse his sin? I'm reading this. How can you excuse your sin? How can Solomon excuse his sin? The same way you do. We are very creative in excusing our sin. Solomon may have said, well, actually, I'm not the one worshiping. They are. I have to keep my wife happy. She wants this chapel, so I will build it for her. This is expedient. This is best for the majority of the people. It keeps the peace. He permitted his wives to continue to worship their gods. I'm doing this out of love. I, I want to give a little. I want to be caring and understanding of where she is. Can you hear his self-justification? I, I still read my Pentateuch. I still talk to her about Yahweh. See, I don't think Solomon was actually himself bowing down to these idols. But he created the atmosphere for his wives to bow down and worship. Therefore, he is guilty of idolatry. It leads me to ask you this question. Are you creating ways for your spouse to fall into idolatry? Are you creating ways for your spouse to fall into idolatry? I'm just giving money for her to buy shoes. I commend him for working so hard. He deserves to buy a boat and miss the gathering on some weekends. She's had a rough day. I'll be a listening ear to her gossip. I know he's always chasing that thrill, that adrenaline. I want him to have those experiences. The problem is, those experiences have him. He leans on them instead of leaning on Christ. Well, I know my husband is addicted to succeeding at his job, but it's better than the alternative, so I encourage it. Your husband should only be addicted to Christ. Men chafe, chase after success like these women chased after pagan chapels. Now, let's walk back through the first one. I'm just giving money for her to buy shoes. And some of you ladies are like, I know this preacher isn't telling my husband to stop buying me shoes. It is Christmas Eve. <laughs> I am not doing that. I am doing this. There are 1,000 advertisements that tell you, you are not enough. But if you had these shoes... Even though they seem like innocent advertisements, you are being trained to be dissatisfied. And husbands can support that idolatry in the lives of their wives. Don't buy the lie that those genes are going to make you accepted. Are you spending money and time that contributes to your spouse's idolatry? Building a home for their idolatry? Buying toys for their idolatry? Visiting places for their idolatry? I'm doing it out of love. It is never love when you make room for someone's idolatry. 
Don't allow the worship of counterfeit gods in your home. How did I end up here, verses 1 through 8? How does God view my drifting? The peril of drift. How did I end up here? How does God view my drifting? Verse 9. How does he view it? And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Solomon's sin evoked the Lord's sure response. Don't ever get it twisted. Your sin angers God. God's wrath is his proper and appropriate reaction to sin. It is good news that God is angry at evil. For no evil will go unpunished. The warnings of God are always reliable. Don't fool around with other gods. He gave very detailed directives. There is never a sin you commit that you have not been pre-forewarned of by God. Spiritual collapse never happens overnight. A downturn into a lifestyle of sin never happens without warning. God is always able to say, I told you so. I told you it would lead here. Stephen Davey says, None of us fall in a moment. It is really more a slide past many different warning signs. How does God view my drifting? First, he's angry. Second, he views it like he warns you of it. The verse says God appeared to Solomon twice. Which leads me to conclude, your previous experiences with God are no guarantee he will not be angry with you in the future. Your faithfulness in the past will not hedge against compromises in the future. Fighting sin is always present tense. Solomon's sin was greater because of the special privilege he enjoyed. Solomon's heart had turned away, verse 9. That's the opposite of repentance. Solomon refused to repent of his sin. Christian, you are always turning. Either turning to God in repentance or turning away from God to sin. Sin turns, repentance turns. How are you turning? Verse 11. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Solomon was under a fu fundamental obligation that he failed to keep. He frittered away fellowship with God. God says, I will rip the kingdom from you. Has God ever blessed you with something and then took it away because you misused it? God never lets his children skate free of their idolatry. Solomon's sins will have grave national consequences, as we will see. A divided heart will lead to a divided kingdom. Verse 12. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. Not now, and not all, and not forever. Not now, and not all, and not forever. God will rip the kingdom, but not now. He will wait until Solomon dies. The ripping will be delayed. God will rip the kingdom, but not now and not all. He will not take away every tribe from Solomon's line, only a partial piece. God will rip the kingdom, but not now and not all and not forever. 
God will find a way to discipline Solomon while still keeping everlasting covenant with himself. We see both the wrath of God against sin and the faithfulness of God to his promise. The peril of drift. How did I end up here? Verses 1 through 8. How does God view my drifting? Verses 9 through 13. What are the repercussions of my drifting? Verses 14 through 43. You see, this is the peril of drift. It leads you to asking questions. How did I end up here? How does God view my drifting? What are the repercussions of my drifting? God will send adversaries as a repercussion to Solomon's sin. He will send three adversaries from verse 14 to 43. This section walks out how the adversaries oppose Solomon. The first two adversaries are outside the house, meaning they are not in Israel. The third adversary is inside the house, meaning he's in Israel. And I, and I, I love how the, the historian here artfully presents it to us. Would you, would you notice adversaries outside of the house? That's Hadad, verses 14 through 22. And also Rizon, verses 23 through 25. These represent opposition on the edges of the empire. External enemies. Then the internal enemy. Adversaries inside the house. That's Jeroboam, verses 26 through 40. Each pose their own serious threat to Solomon and his kingdom. The first adversary is found in verse 14. And the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was of the royal house in Edom. We have not heard this phrase, the Lord raised up, since back in Judges. When the Lord raised up judges to deliver Israel. Now he raises up enemies to inflict Israel. Who raised this man up? God. God raised up external and internal enemies against Solomon. His drifting had consequences. God stirred up his enemies. If Solomon would have been in the American church... He would have said something like, the devil is fighting my work. No, it is God. God appointed adversaries. God incited Hadad. God's instrument, Hadad. God's instrument, Rizon. God's instrument, Jeroboam. All instruments in the hand of God. Solomon, the division happens after you are gone. But the resistance happens now. And the narrator gives a brief sketch of Hadad's life, the backstory. Apparently, David, Solomon's father, had led a military triumph over the Edomites. We exposited that back in 2 Samuel chapter 8. The Edomites were beheaded. The mission took six months. The swords grew dull, but they lopped off the head of every Edomite. Well, nearly every Edomite. Hadad escaped with some others and became an Edomite in exile. Egypt took him in. Hadad was a child at the time, according to verse 17. His core memory as a child is sitting under some shelter in the woods watching his father and brothers and uncles be beheaded by Israel along with 18,000 other men. The memory plagued him. He still woke up in sweats and night terrors. That hatred and bitterness grew in Hadad. And he dreamed about growing up and unleashing revenge on Israel. The Pharaoh in Egypt kind of adopted him as a child. Then as he grew, gave him a job and some land and a wife and an expense account and a company vehicle. It's fitting that Solomon married an Edomite woman and worshipped her Edomite god. Now an Edomite is about to come and wreak havoc for Solomon. Verse 21. But when Hadad heard in Egypt that David slept with his fathers and that Joab, the commander of the army, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, Let me depart, that I may go to my own country. But Pharaoh said to him, What have you lacked with me 
that you are now seeking to go to your own country. And Hadad said to him, only let me depart. Interesting, he's using Exodus language. Send me back, kind of Moses-like. But this Moses will harass God's people. That's the first adversary. Now the second, verse 23. God also raised up an adversary to him, Rizon, the son of Eliada, who had fled from his master Hadadezer, king of Zobah, and he gathered men about him and became leader of a marauding band after the killing of David. And they went to Damascus and lived there and made him king in Damascus. He was an adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon, doing harm as Hadad did. And he loathed Israel and reigned over Syria. God incites another adversary against Solomon, Rizon. He's the instrument of God's discipline. God's wooden spoon. This was another example of someone who became an exile, escaped one of David's bloody battles. In this battle, Israel massacred 22,000 Assyrians and 20,000 of Hadadezer's men. Do you see the pattern? David defeats a nation, some men escape, they are exiled in another land, they grow, they plot revenge. This adversary is a vigilante marauder type. He leads a party of bandits. They overcome caravans in the desert. These are the pirates of the desert. He has an eye patch and scowl on his face. He hates Israel, and they will soon know it. He even rises to the position of king in Damascus. The picture here is that Israel is being surrounded by enemies, which is crazy. Because there has always been peace on every side for so long. The greatest threat, however, was from within. He's not an outsider or an exile or, or displaced. He's one of them. The third adversary is introduced in verse 26. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite of Zerada, a servant of Solomon, Whose, mother name, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also lifted up his hand against the king. Now, church, Solomon didn't know Jeroboam was going to be an enemy at first. That's why, verse 28, the man Jeroboam was very able, and when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he gave him charge over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. He impressed Solomon, so Solomon gave him power. I, I need people that can get things done. And this guy has a lot of energy. You got to like people who can get things done. Solomon gives him the accolade of industrious. He sees potential. This guy has no royal blood in his veins. But soon he gets word that he will control part of Solomon's kingdom. Verse 29. And at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him on the road. Now Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment. And the two of them were alone in the open country. Then Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into 12 pieces. Now this is interesting. One day Jeroboam is just minding his own business, walking down a remote stretch of road, and suddenly he encounters a prophet of God. We have not had a prophet since Nathan over 40 years ago. It's been a lot of kings, but not a lot of prophets. God brings a prophet back on the scene. Prophets did not play a prominent role in Solomon's reign. And the Hebrew is a bit confused, and we're, we are not sure if it was the prophet's coat or Jeroboam's coat, but the prophet begins ripping the coat into 12 pieces. Now, why are you doing that to that brand new jacket? That's an expensive North Face jacket. He's dramatizing the oracle. He gives Jeroboam 10 of the 12 pieces. He says, this jacket is the kingdom of Israel and you are going to receive 10 of the 12 tribes. This predictive prophecy symbolically made known to Jeroboam the future. Verse 31. And he said to Jeroboam, take for yourself 10 pieces. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I'm about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you ten tribes. The United Kingdom 
will become a divided kingdom. This will not be the peaceful work of a diplomat, but the painful work of an angry Lord. As it is broken up, the tribal entities come back into play. He announces the future split of the kingdom. And he informs him, God is furious with a capital F. Verse 33. They have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemish, the god of Moab, Milcom, the god of the Ammonites, and they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight and keeping my statues and my rules as David his father did. Now, Jeroboam is told plainly in the following verses, this split will not happen until Solomon dies. Once Solomon dies, then God will give him ten of the tribes and Solomon's son the remaining. Your rule will take place within these confines. Verse 36 is is very important because there's a, a promise amidst the words of chastisement. God will be faithful in preserving the seed of David. The house of David would be disciplined but not destroyed. He will not destroy David's house. Instead, he will leave a lamp. That's the wordage there, a lamp burning. This is a continuation of the dynasty language. Jeroboam will prove to be a greedy and ambitious opportunist. Some theologians think he tried to to make an early grab for the throne. Stiff-armed the timing and, and Solomon found out and tried to kill him. Maybe Solomon heard about this prophecy and tried to kill him because of the prophecy attempting to take matters into his own hand, trying to get ahead of the repercussions of his sin, acting like Saul, trying to kill the next man who is to sit on the throne. You are not Saul. You are Solomon. We're not sure. Verse 40 leaves us wanting for details. We are sure Jeroboam became a fugitive from the law. He escaped to, of all places, Egypt. He found a safe house there. The seeds of division that were planted will bloom. It's coming soon. The Solomon narrative ends with these lines, verse 41. Now the rest of the acts of Solomon and all that he did and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the acts of Solomon? And the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. Solomon dies. We do not have have a copy of the book that's mentioned here. It's been lost in time. The peril of drift. How did I end up here? Verses 1 through 8. How does God view my drifting? Verses 9 through 13. What are the repercussions of my drifting? Verses 14 through 43. Finally, hope for the drifters. These are some applications. How did I end up here? How does God view my drifting? What are the repercussions of my drifting? Finally, hope for the drifters. I have four of them. You thought I was finished, didn't you? I just, I love watching the people that are here for the first time. I really do. You thought I was finished. I'm about 30% finished. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I only have four more applications. All right, application one. You don't have to be Solomon. You can have a long-term life of godliness. You don't have to be Solomon. You can have a long-term life of godliness. I don't think I will ever forget how verse four opened. It opened like this. When Solomon was old, Solomon started wonderfully but ended abysmally. No matter how long you have walked with God, you are not exempt from obedience. Drift is not a danger to only kings in the Middle East 3,000 years ago. I don't know what it is about things going well in life, but most of the time, that doesn't keep your heart from drifting. It accelerates it. Solomon drifted in times of ease. As he got older, he lost more and more of his heart. Senior citizens, you, like Solomon, can meet major troubles in the final years of your life. 
If you become unfaithful to God, it will likely be in times of ease and it will likely be slowly. Not something dramatic, a slow cooling, almost imperceptible to the outside. Alexander McLaren speaks to those who are 55 years old, 65 years old, 75 years old, 85 years old, and he says, Solomon warns us that till the very end of life, failure is possible. Solomon's ship went down when the voyage was nearly over. He stands on the page of this history, a sad figure, a man that has had the reputation for wisdom and honor, but now shames the record of his life by a great splash of mud on the white page near its end. Beloved, you don't have to be Solomon. It can be said of you, when he was old, when she was old, she came sailing into the port of heaven as gallantly as she first began. Application two. You do not have to allow your spiritual gift to hide your drifting heart. You do not have to allow your spiritual gift to hide your drifting heart. Solomon was gifted. He was gifted with wisdom from God to be the wisest man on earth. Talk about a dazzling spiritual gift. He accomplished a lot of good things with that spiritual gift. A lot of things for God. But somewhere he forgot that great gifts do not excuse great sins. Philip Ryken said that spiritual gifts will not keep us from sin if the heart is turning away from God. I heard Tim Keller before he died once say that just because you are exercising your spiritual gift doesn't mean you are right with God. But you can deceive yourself into thinking it does. He said, I could be preaching and after a meeting people come up to me and say how it blessed them, how much they grew, how God's word ministered to them and all the while I could be secretly in sin. But I excuse it because look, my spiritual gift is functioning. Your spiritual gift is not a measure of your fervency for Christ. Your spiritual gift is not a replacement for your spiritual disciplines. Solomon's spiritual gift of wisdom didn't keep him from sin. Paul David Tripp. My wife's reading a book by him now. Paul David Tripp posed this question. Do you know why most pastors fall into sin? They forget they are made of the same stuff as the people they preach to. If I ever cease to be the recipient of grace and become only a preacher of grace, I am headed for disaster. At one point in Solomon's life, they would have said, he is the last person I would have ever thought would have fallen into sin. Anyone but Solomon. Application number three. Don't be content with pet sins. You will begin by petting them, but before you know it, they will quickly put you on a leash. Don't be content with pet sins. You will begin by petting them, but before you know it, they will put you on a leash. One man said, a preacher's job is to comfort the troubled and trouble the comfortable. That is my intention this morning. Do you feel your heart flirting with different sins? The persistent nature of your straying heart going back to certain sins. Augustine said, give me chastity, but not yet. <laughs> the truest prayer I think I've ever read. Give me chastity, but not yet. We can pray this and fill in the blank. Give me contentment, but not until I get that. Give me love, but not for that person. Give me peace, but allow me to still relive the situation over and over in my mind. Will you despise your sin like the Lord does? 
Resist every little sin in your life. We want to deny sin, rename sin, redefine sin, ignore sin, manage sin, shift the blame for sin. What should we do? We should hate sin and constantly repent of sin. You, you cannot let sin go unchecked and think everything will be fine. Little compromises will cultivate a numb conscience. You will become desensitized to sin. You will develop a calloused heart. Your brief flirtations will sin with sin will last longer and longer. It's not enough skin to count as pornography. I know I'm getting emotionally attached, but, but you know, you've got to know your coworkers. Christian, are you like Solomon? Still praying orthodox prayers, still writing proverbs, still exercising your gifts, but somewhere along the way you stopped killing sin? John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Do not culturalize your sin. Well, it's impossible to remain a virgin before marriage. It's impossible to marry a godly man with the choices that are available to me. That's what Solomon did. The Moabite women need this chapel. That's culturalizing sin. That's pretty much saying, I'm just content to never get victory over this sin. Church, turn from the little high places you have been building. God keeps his promises. Sin does not. Sin always defaults on its promises. Do not be fooled. Tommy Bailey and Donald Whitney have done a wonderful job supplying diagnostic questions for us to evaluate our spiritual health. And this is a wonderful time of season to evaluate our spiritual health. Here's one of the questions. What is my current spiritual trajectory? Mark Dever notes a small difference in trajectory can make a big difference in destination. Sin often begins with what may feel like a minor concession. Here's another diagnostic question. What am I building? Are you building little idol shops? Do I delight in my Savior? Do I grieve over sin? Am I being governed increasingly by God's word? Do I love God's people? Do I have an active hunger and thirst for the preached word? Am I a quicker forgiver? Our spiritual disciplines, reading the word, praying, are spiritual disciplines important to me? Here's the hope for drifters. The Holy Spirit gives you a brake pedal. You don't have to continue in sin. Sin no longer reigns even though temptation still remains. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Solomon's sins are elementary compared to what we would do without the restraining power of the Holy Spirit. Application number four. And this is our last. In the very place Solomon sinned, Jesus was sinless. We need a king who finished well. In the very place Solomon sinned, Jesus was sinless. We need a king who finished well. Solomon built these pagan altars. According to verse 7, he built one on the mountain east of Jerusalem. Mountain east of Jerusalem. Now that's got to be the Mount of Olives. King Solomon at the Mount of Olives sinned. 1,000 years later, 
at the very spot where Solomon sinned, another king remained sinless. There Jesus prayed at night and sweat great drops of blood. It was the night before his crucifixion. In the very spot where Solomon betrayed God, God in flesh would be betrayed by Judas. The Bible does not answer the question directly, did Solomon ever genuinely repent? It's unthinkable that he didn't eventually repent of his sin. Will we see him in heaven? Was he a legit believer? We have good reason to be hopeful of his salvation. According to Ecclesiastes, it seems like he learned from the repercussions of his sins. But in the very place where King Solomon drifted, God sent another king to pay for the sins of the drifter. And not just his sins, but our sins. Jesus paid for the eternal consequences of our drifting. Beloved, that is hope for the drifters. And a warning for the non-Christians. Repent and run to this perfect Christ. Let's pray together. Father, King Solomon didn't finish well. We are so grateful he was not the Messiah. Simply a signpost that pointed to the Messiah. You promised to send a king who not only would begin well, but finish well. And he did. We can die well because our king finished well. Amen.